Hello, Chris. Good afternoon, Mr. Barbelay. How are you, sir? Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So um, this is a this is an impromptu model rail radio recording being recorded on July seventh between Chris Abbott and myself. Take it back to the take it back to the early episodes of just Chris and me chatting. Mainly because Chris, I've there've been a wide variety of topics that I've wanted to discuss with you in recent shows, but you just haven't been on. But I wanted to start off with on a slightly sad note and send out my condolences to Roger Chrysler and his his collective family. I mean, Rich Chrysler was just a, a giant in your part of the world and someone who ideally wanted to actually get on the show. But unfortunately, he passed away in the past week. And I know you knew Rich. So would you like to um, send your condolences and some, some background to who he was? The, the passing of Rich is a tremendous loss to our modeling community in, in this area, especially. Um, very much a fixture and, you know, you, you don't go to a show without expecting to see Rich somewhere at some time during the show. You know, he was a member of the Ontario and Eastern group uh, of modelers, and they were the instigators of the Copetown show, the famous Copetown show. And they ran that for a number of years very successfully and promoted Canadian prototype modeling um, in this area. Uh, as I said, it was always a, a small show, but people would make great pilgrimages to come to, to be there and participate and go to the clinics and learn and see what was new and exciting. Uh, Rich, also a member of the Canada Southern Fremo group up here, along with uh, people like uh, Tim Warris, Trevor Marshall, Pierre Oliver, and and the like. Uh, the O&E gang and the Queso gang, uh, you know, represent some of the best quality uh, work and uh, highest craftsmanship in this area, certainly. And almost to a man, they were, uh, you know, they are a, a huge um, influence on on people that see them at shows. And Rich would always be there answering questions and pointing things out to people or correcting their uh, misunderstandings. I wasn't always with uh, the group, uh, sort of, hanger on uh, myself but that didn't stop rich from always being extremely pleasant and uh, extremely helpful if i had a question uh or you know just somebody to chat with at, at a show he was always looking for the rare and the interesting as a as a researcher he would go after the nuance uh in order to really capture a scene so i mean i can remember one conversation we had at the british train show where he was looking for uh brickwork uh, vintage English-style brickwork with either a, a Flemish bond or an English bond on the on the bricks because one of the engine houses that was on the area that he modeled was originally built by British um, railway men back in the late 1800s, and they built in the style of uh, of what was at home. And he wanted to recreate that. Just just getting any old piece of brickwork wasn't sufficient for Rich. And uh, we had a great conversation on this tiny bit of minutia that that made modeling interesting for for him as a historian and a researcher. And uh, I could use the term rivet counter with Rich, and there would be absolutely no uh, derogatory uh, uh, bent to that at all. I mean, he was really a consummate craftsman you know, willing to share of his time and his knowledge with anyone who, who asked him at any time. It was uh, really tremendous to, to 
to talk with him and he'd always have a thoughtful comment or a bit of encouragement for you to uh to go ahead with your own projects and uh he wasn't you know big headed about his skill set he would always listen to something that somebody else had to say uh because he figured he could learn i think he could learn from anyone uh some little tidbit or or technique you know it just not having him around at the various shows at the craftsman's corner or uh, perusing the various layouts or vendors, uh, looking for something for his own layout. It's it's going to be a void. Um, there'll be everybody. It's amazing the outpouring of of comments. Um, you know, everybody in the area knows knows Rich, and it's a hard thing for his family, and obviously for for Roger and uh, who we know from the show. And you know, his contributions are going to be uh, greatly missed at at all the events and. In all the conversations that used to go on in, uh, over the phone or at the shows or, you know, uh, just at a barbecue or something. So one of those things in, in life that, that just doesn't seem fair with all the, the horrible or rotten people out in the world that seem to live to ripe old ages. And then you get a guy like Rich, who uh, just a consummate gentleman and uh, really a, a kind-hearted and, and generous person. And then he gets taken away at such uh, short notice, really. I'm sure there's going to be uh, more accurate and uh, more poignant and uh, more wonderful things said about him in the upcoming weeks. I believe there's going to be a memorial service, which I'm really going to try and get to. Uh, I hope the uh, situations at work and, and other don't prevent me from, from making it to this because uh, it, it's going to be amazing to see the people that are going to come to just to celebrate his life, really. Well, again, condolences out to, to Roger and his family. I, I knew about Rich perhaps slightly earlier than most, mainly because Roger was on a couple of shows ago, and I asked, actually, if we could get Rich on. Email exchange followed, and yeah, condolences out to Roger, uh, because clearly his brother had a very strong, very positive impact, and certainly, as you note, I've been following the posts on Facebook and the number of people who have been truly inspired by Rich's work, and as you say, all these elements is uh, is just phenomenal. Condolences out to Roger. Rest in peace, Rich Chrysler. I'm sure that uh, that uh, he, it'll be a long time before Rich's influence is uh, is forgotten around here, uh, if if it ever is, because uh, just the the body of work that he's produced and uh, the number of people that uh, have been affected by uh, by their interactions with him. I mean, there's there's so many of them that uh, it'll be a long time before, uh, as I say, any of his uh, input is forgotten. So I don't know how we can go to a more positive note from this. It's uh, it's a sad thing, but life goes on, and the hobby continues, and uh, the community continues, uh, even though we're all going to feel this loss. So I've, I've been living vicariously through your posts and YouTube and a variety of other things. I'm interested at Grand Rails, actually, to see if there will be a live Steam component there. My live Steam interests are G-scale of that kind of area, not not 7.5-inch, although 7.5-inch is, is quite amazing. But I am interested in seeing if there'll be any oh, of that scale live Steam at Grand Rails. I think it's probably the only thing where I will need to keep my credit cards uh, well well away uh, if I do see any in the wild. We've had a we've had a lot of discussion on the show when you were on, associated with your particular live steam interests. And since you were on, 
you went to a particular get-together and you purchased another locomotive. So would you like to give some introduction to that experience and your new locomotive? Well, uh, yeah, there was a terrific gathering that I, I made every effort not to miss. And actually, the, the stars were all in alignment and I was able to get there in a timely fashion. And uh, despite the fact that uh, that I wasn't able to bring anything with me due to a number of... Uh, uh, logistics factors. Um, there were swap tables set up, and there were uh, there was probably twenty eight or thirty people there all together uh, from the northern U.S. and uh, the southern part of Ontario. Well, Wil- Wilbur's track will support, I think, three engines running simultaneously: one thirty-two uh, millimeter gauge and two forty-fives. But uh, they also had a uh, portable layout set up, a uh, big oval that. It's taken to shows, so there was plenty of room to run trains, and uh, there were alcohol fired and butane fired and li- uh, coal fired locomotives running during the day. Lots of uh, refreshments and uh, you know, more food than you could feed an army. <laughs> uh, brought uh, home baked stuff, and there were burgers and dogs, and uh, the swap tables were were groaning under the weight of all the various excess items from everyone's personal hobby shops. I did look through the swap tables. Actually, the, the book table I thought was particularly interesting, and thankfully your your photograph was in a sufficiently high resolution that I could get on ABE books and check out what books were still available, because the perfect live steam book still remains elusive uh, <laughs> in terms of the stuff that I've found so far. My father uh, had a couple of books from the 1950s, that were absolutely phenomenal and went into a kind of, I don't know, t- I, I guess I'm just at a teenage boy level in terms of my <laughs> engineering skill set, but went into that perfect kind of teenage boy, build your first, you know, engine. And the stuff that I've found through ABE books, particularly the more modern stuff, all requires a level of machining and these kind of things. So I was looking through the uh, books that were on the stands in particular with the view that there may be a title that just fits perfectly into my own specific interests. But in terms of the, the swap table as well, I, I took a particular interest in what was there. Um, one of the, I can't remember whether it was a, was it um, an Accurecraft locomotive that they converted to coal or, it was a roundhouse locomotive actually. It was a, it was a Lady Anne, like the one you have, but they converted it to coal. Yeah, the coal, the coal conversion was done by a company called Sabre Steam. And uh, they have a, a short but storied history. Some of the first ones that were done were were absolutely fantastic, and they ran really well. And some of the later ones had a number of problems. This is all well documented in the Garden Railway Press. And it's a shame that there was a, a decline in quality, but uh, because it was one of the only places you could get uh, coal-fired locomotives that, that weren't astronomically priced. That said... There are other manufacturers that, that are offering coal, uh, coal firing these days, and I think I posted a couple on the Facebook page uh, in that thread. You know, it's, it's a wonderful way to do things, but it is uh, another level of obfuscation. It's, it's a real, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, the wonder of, uh, of live steam is that you've got this uh, boiling, bubbling, spurting uh, mechanism whipping around the track, uh, in the manner of the real thing, but with butane, it, it's very, very simple, very straightforward. A little bit of uh, pressurized gas in the in the tank, 
a little bit of uh, carefully distilled water, a little bit of steam oil, and 10 minutes later, you're up and running. Uh, this is not so with uh, the coal-fired option, but it's, it's like going from cooking on a, on a gas barbecue to cooking on a, a charcoal barbecue. You know, everything tastes better, and it's, uh, it's a more manly exercise uh, in some ways. The smell is one thing that I, I I just have like fond childhood memories of going to well annual train shows and just the smell of coal fired locomotives and as you say the oil and all the various elements. I mean I I guess I just haven't been. This is one of the things I'm interested in Grand Rails if they actually have operating uh, live steam layouts because um, yeah I haven't actually been around the equivalent butane or. Actually, I've, I've been around ethanol-fired locomotives, and I did miss the smell. But I'm interested in um, in seeing what's available. And also, it's funny, just while I was waiting for you to get online, I was on eBay looking at the live steam offerings. And there are a number of folk in my area, including Santa Cruz and uh, various parts of the Bay, because one of the offerings actually on eBay was from a fellow in Santa Cruz. Uh, so, yeah, for folks in the Bay Area who are doing live steam, Although I may appear scary on this particular podcast, please do reach out to me because I am interested in actually seeing it uh, up close and personable uh, because, yeah, it just seems absolutely uh, amazing. All the elements that you described basically seem to really captivate me currently. So can you describe the um, the new locomotive that you have? Uh, the new locomotive is uh, a Bantam made by a company called Argyle, and they are out of or were out of Australia. And it's an 040 uh, saddle tank locomotive. It runs a treat. I was really pleased with the the mechanism, uh, the the ease that the mechanism uh, operated. I mean, it took off at about 15 pounds pressure and ran for the better part of half an hour. And I don't think I had a full charge in the butane tank. There was a slight leak that I've uh, addressed uh, with a new uh, gasket. Just fantastic, beautiful, smooth. Uh, quiet, uh, runs uh, better with some uh, some coaches behind it. Uh, uh, most of the live steam locomotives need a little bit of weight to pull for them to do their job properly. Otherwise, the throttle seems to tend to be the on-off, more on-off than anything else. You, without the a weight behind it, it doesn't have any, how shall I say, uh, granularity with the throttle. It, it tends to just take off without uh, without a load behind it. But I showed up at the meet with, with nothing uh, except an appetite and left with a locomotive and uh, six tipper wagons. People provided the, the necessary oil, water, and gas for me to have a, a nice long run. It was terrific. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a nondescript locomotive in terms of the, the solid black uh, coloration, but it, it very well will suit a, a contractor-style locomotive, say, the type that would be used at a sand pit or uh, uh, gas works or something. And uh, it's 32 millimeter gauge. It is regageable to 45 uh, just by releasing the, uh, the grub screws on the axles and moving the wheels out. So that was the thing that, that uh, pushed me over the edge because that means I can run this at anybody's layout in the area, really, uh, just by regaging. So. Can you talk a little bit about the, I mean, this is something I've picked up kind of implicitly through watching YouTube and reading various documents uh, online, particularly manufacturer documents. But in terms of the actual mechanisms and the efficiency within the mechanisms, when I look at the 
you know, the entry-level locomotives, the mechanisms seem relatively simple in one regard, but also probably not energy efficient. And when I look at the kind of compare and contrast, and some of this may be size as well, but some of the more intricate mechanisms seem to also have additional energy efficiency in terms of productive use of the steam that's produced and these kind of things. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the Lady Anne is one that oh, I always find curious because the mechanism has some kind of strange, almost like elliptical shapes in certain areas and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about the compare and contrast in terms of efficiency and the different kinds of mechanisms and how they relate to run length and efficient use of the steam? Oh, my. This is probably well beyond my area of expertise or my level of expertise in the, in the hobby so far, but I'll try and uh, take, a, take a swing at it. One of the most important factors in terms of the efficient use of the, the steam in the engine is the type and configuration of the valve gear that uh, admits the steam from the boiler into the cylinders. And the simpler the locomotive, the simpler the valve gear. And a lot of the valve gear has such a short throw on it that it, it basically will stop steam from coming in or allow it to come in so that it can go forward or allow it to come in so that it can go backwards. And there's no uh, fine levels of adjustment between closed and fully forward. On the real locomotives, there's a, a number of notches from the fully closed position to fully open position. In the fully open position, steam admitted to the cylinder doesn't really have much of a chance to do its expansive uh, action. It's really the, just the pure pressure of the steam in the boiler that's coming in and moving the piston. It's not a little bit of steam coming in and the steam expanding to a, a number of times its original volume to push the, uh, the, cylinder, or the piston back. Uh, in, in the real locomotive, you're going to have probably six to eight notches between fully off and fully open. And you can bring it back uh, called adjusting the cutoff. Um, and the, the valve will only be open for a portion of the piston's movement such that it will allow it to use the steam in a much more efficient manner. And there's a, a, a few... Uh, adjustments in the reverse as well, or a few levels of adjustment in the reverse. Uh, the models don't have, most models don't have a lot of um, uh, range of, uh, of adjustment in that factor. You have to kind of uh, muck about to get your, your valve settings. And it, of course, everything is quite small in the, in the model. So the amount of lead and lap on the, the motion of the the, uh, the, the valve uh, itself is kind of hard to judge. You don't get the same effect with a large hole in, in a steam chest on the real thing. You've kind of got a, uh, if the edge of it is rounded, you'll kind of have this half moon sort of appearing and a little bit of steam comes in and then towards the center of the long slot and then back and forth with, as the valve moves. Uh, the, the open and shut of the, the valve is a little less abrupt, uh, just because of the shape of the holes that are made in the castings. But on the tiny model locomotives, the, that effect is, is very minimal because the holes are so small. All the passages uh, are very tiny, and the amount of opening and closing is, is such a short uh, throw. So by carefully fitting the, the pistons and cylinders and making sure that everything is 
is adjusted so that there is a minimal amount of binding and that everything is lubricated properly, the mechanical resistance to the motion will tend to to be less and therefore it won't require as much steam pressure to move the pistons in the cylinders. So as I said with uh, with this Argyle that I picked up, it took off at, uh, I mean the the peg was barely off the, or the needle was barely off the peg on the on the pressure gauge before it decided it was happy enough to run. So uh, instead of going up to 25 or 30 or 40 pounds pressure, it was taking off as little as 15, and that was really gratifying. So if it's going to run at that level, you can turn the burner down uh, so that it's not roaring away as, uh, as consumptively and... Uh, the amount of steam, as long as you're generating sufficient volume of steam at that pressure for the duration of the uh, the runtime, then you should be good uh, throughout the whole thing. It's uh, if your safety valve is popping off because you're constantly at the top of the pressure range for the boiler, then you're you're wasting the steam uh, out into the atmosphere. It's not doing any work in the cylinders. I don't know. That's kind of a roundabout answer. I don't know if that really. Can you compare it to your experience with the Lady Anne? Uh, the Lady Anne has a different set of valve controls on it. Uh, it is sufficiently well. First of all, the Lady Anne has full set of reversing gear on it, so you can you can set the uh, the forward and reverse in, in the cab with a with a lever arm. And uh, by not pushing it all the way forward, I do achieve some measure of economy. Uh, because the steam is not admitted for the full stroke of the of the piston, but again, as I said, it's 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 small, so I, I don't know whether it may make a difference of five or seven minutes in the total runtime. And the Argyle has uh, what they call slip eccentric for its valve gear, so it's always on in one direction or the other. The there's a set of eccentrics on the the axle that control the admission of steam to the cylinders. They can rotate about 180 degrees, a little less than that on the on the axle, and they're stopped by a pin. It's like describing a spiral staircase without using your hands. But essentially, <laughs> if, I want, if I want to go forward, I close the throttle, I push the locomotive probably about two or three inches in the forward direction. The slip eccentrics move about the axle, and the pins pick up the rods that control the uh, eval- uh, admission to the, the cylinders, and then I open the throttle and away it goes forward. If I want to go backwards, I have to close the throttle, push the engine manually backwards about two or three inches. That will set the eccentrics the other way in their, uh, in their travel. And then when I open the throttle again, the engine will be going reverse. It's all the timing and everything is set once at the outset of the construction. And then that's it. But it was done so so nicely and so well from the factory that I'm getting you know, upwards of 25 minutes on a on a run with it. So very happy with it. And in terms of the cost saving of buying the kit components of the Lady Anne, I mean, this is certainly something that I've considered. As a kind of first-time assembler, this also, the, the may, you know, the, the initial savings may be completely lost in the kind of issues that you're describing. It's not quite the same as assembling around... Uh, the other kind of roundhouse, the other MDC roundhouse, white metal and plastic electric locomotive kits, um, to pick up a roundhouse Lady Anne kit with the boiler and the chassis and the bodywork all in separate boxes and then trying to solder them up and uh, fit them together. It's a, it's a 
it's non-trivial. I'm not going to dissuade anyone from doing it because it's a wonderful thing uh, to to undertake. But it's not going to be a an overnight project or even a weekend project to do all the work. There's a number of careful fitting operations that have to be done. You know, there's a lot of things in a in a, an electric model that, that that don't move at all. They're purely cosmetic. In the live steam model, there's very little that's cosmetic. It all has to do something. It all performs some part of the important function of the of the locomotion. So if you don't fit it properly or you get it off angle or you it's done a little too tight when you do your your hammering uh, hammering the rivets over or it's a little too loose, then it just doesn't it it won't work satisfactorily for you. The Ruby kit from from AccuCraft is an excellent value in terms of a live steam purchase for a, a novice. And if you follow the instructions uh, carefully, you have uh, a very nice little locomotive when you're done. My understanding is they're probably running about 425 or 450 US right now for a Ruby kit, whereas uh, a Lady Anne is probably all in going to be a lot closer to 12 or 1300 uh, for the kit. So depending on your intestinal fortitude, <laughs> you, know, you can you can go for one or the other. The nice thing about the kits as presented is you don't need a full machine shop in your basement to do any of these things. The the Ruby particularly, you can put together with simple hand tools and a conscientious approach. You don't have to have a lathe, a mill. A drill press in some cases would be nice, and a lot of people are much more able to get a hold of, of the use of a drill press than, than they are anything else. So if you're interested in starting off with a, with, with a kit building exercise, I think think I would probably recommend the Ruby as a starter, unless you've done a lot of brass brass kit assembly in the electric uh, field. Before, I, I probably wouldn't start with something like a Lady Ant. Well, mind you, Roundhouse have a number of, of entry-level uh, kit locomotives as well. I think Bertie and Sammy and Millie, I think, are the three that are their entry levels. So they're, they're much more akin to the, the Ruby in terms of complexity. In terms of appearance, another locomotive, and this in large part is due to the conversion potential. And here, this is about adding uh, potentially. I'm sorry, I've got a cat here. Let me just. Bertie wants to make his entry. Sorry, Bertie must be on the show. Okay. In terms of uh, appearance and appearance mods, the Raglith, which without kind of locomotive structure, just the raw assembly, I think is somewhere between the Ruby and the Lady Anne in, in price terms. The Raglith in appearance terms, and particularly some of the conversions that were shown and the ability to, um, you know, backwoodsify, there was a, like a, a continental Indian conversion, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. But just in terms of form and function and size, that's another locomotive that has, uh, has caught my eye recently. Are you familiar with the Raglith at all? Uh, I don't know anyone around here who owns one, which is kind of odd because guys around here tend to pick up anything new. <laughs> it's it's funny when I'm probably one of the youngest guys in the live steam group, it, uh, you know, and I'm mid 40s now. Uh, most of the people that are in live steam of my acquaintance tend to be uh, close to retirement or retired. It's it's sort of the thing that that you you move on to as you. Uh, progress through the the model railway hobby. From what I remember, it's a nice little 040 unit, and AccuCraft make top quality stuff. Don't don't get me wrong; they're they're a 
they're a wonderful manufacturer and they, they build things that operate very, very well. And the nice thing about something like um, a basic chass- running chassis for a, a steam locomotive is that you can, they're built to a nominal gauge of 32 or 45 millimeter. You can, by just by changing a few superstructure details, you can make it represent anything from about 42 inch gauge uh, on a, down to 15 inch gauge in real life just by m- sizing the cab and the uh, the figure that you might get from someplace like Busy Bodies or something like that uh, in the cab and it will give you a sense of working in anywhere from about say 1 to 13 which is 7 8 inch scale down to 1 to 24 which is you know one of the various G scales right? Certainly. And indeed, my, my friend Ian took the Ruby, which is nominally a, a 1 to 19 locomotive, and put a larger cab and uh, a, some other features on it that made it into uh, more like a 7 eighths inch to the foot loco. And he's done a, a tremendous job with this. However, he's run it so much that he's actually worn out some of the, uh, the running gear uh, oh. pistons and whatnot. So he had done a straight replacement of all the worn parts gaskets, uh, packing glands, pistons, and it doesn't run as well as it did originally because, of course, due to variations in manufacturing process, things will never end up exactly the same as they were when you simply swap out a, a, a piece. So he's going to have to go through the same process that he went in the original assembly and tune the mechanism such that it gets that same wonderful backwards and forwards equivalent operation and uh and he'll be back back in business again so i'm going to be in chicago in the well actually the start of grand rails i'm going to be in chicago uh and my hope is to to meet up with steve and actually see his ruby running if possible i mean that's that's a number of asks there already Mm -hmm. because it is a locomotive that strikes me with the potential that as as you describe because of its size and also the kind of power that comes out of it, that if you were to run it for maybe, I don't know, how, how long did your friend run it for before these problems started? Well, uh, he ran it for, I think, many, many weeks <laughs> of, of running time, uh, simply because it was just such a, a nicely assembled uh, unit. Depending on the amount of lubrication you use and the amount of, uh, the number of hours that you're going to put on it, it, it will wear more or less. I think in the end, probably what, all, all that needed to be done on it was the packing glands. He got a little uh, enthusiastic <laughs> and replaced more things than were strictly necessary. Uh-huh. Uh, and in which case it disturbed the original configuration more so than simply replacing the packing, packing glands would have, uh, would have done. However, it's a live and learn thing. And, uh, I mean, he gave up all the electric trains he ever had when he got the Ruby and it worked so well when he was done with it. He, he found his muse, found what he wanted to follow, and electric trains no longer held any interest whatsoever. So um, uh, he's thrown himself completely into this and he's having a, a ball with it. It's just another excuse to strip it down and do yet more work on it. So, <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, it is something that interests me about the, particularly the entry-level locomotives is, as you say, if they work wonderfully initially and you use them continuously, 
does this uh, cause detriment to their life? I think about clothes here. I'm not sure if your experience in traveling, but through various parts of my life, I've traveled for pretty solid periods of time. And I've found that if you wash and wear and wash and wear and wash and wear the same clothes in a relatively short period of time, they will survive less than the same pair of clothes if they're extended. There's some strange property associated with just letting clothes sit on a hanger where, I don't know, they recombobulate in some fashion. And my sense is probably the same is true with running locomotives too. Interesting, interesting feedback there, Chris. I'm interested in folk who do own raglets as well to give some additional review because I think in terms of my time and potential initial cost once the house has actually been purchased and the space is available, I'm eyeing up the raglet in large part as well, not just because of its size and its running ability, but also visually it appeals to me slightly more than the ruby, although I've seen some amazing cut-down rubies and a variety of other things done to the ruby itself. So yeah, any kind of uh, reviews or any feedback from listeners to this show, please do let me know, because um, it is a relatively large priced item, isn't it, Chris? Well, none of none of this is cheap. Once you get into <laughs> water steam, it's not an inexpensive uh, aspect of the hobby. It really isn't. But that said, you can easily spend the same or more on an HO injection molded or die cast locomotive with sound that does no more in terms of function than, than one of these live steam beauties does. Matter of fact, some would say considerably less in terms of function because there's an interactive, there's a much more interactive element with the live steam. You, you must tend to it. Uh, you, you have to adjust the burner and fill the gas and fill the water and monitor the pressure and, uh, you know, make sure the safety valve is working and lubricate everything. I mean, on the real locomotives, every time you stopped, there'd be somebody out with a can of oil lubricating the slide valves and, or polishing the brass or whatever. And on the larger machines, you've got larger wear surfaces and better lubrication film properties than in the small case. So you have to be as diligent or more diligent in the case of the small things and making sure that you've got everything adjusted properly and, and lubricated properly in order to uh, enjoy the longest uh, usable life out of it. But there is nothing that can break on these things that can't be replaced, either with a file and a set of drills, making, uh, making a new connecting link or adding a screw back in or whatnot. There's, there's nothing that can't be repaired on these things. And, and return them to, to useful service. So I think they're excellent value despite the initial cost on them. And um, certainly in terms of the amount of fun that you can have per dollar spent, um, I think the live steam is right up there with any, any hobby in the world, frankly. There's, it's funny social. There's much more a social gathering thing going on with the live steam you know it's wonderful to get people together and you it's you're not rivet counting you're not you know always fabricating something you're not always saying well gee i don't have this bit of scenery done on the layout sort of thing you get it together you you fill it up with the water and oil and away you go the the silly grin comes over the face (laughs) you know and and everybody enjoys the spectacle of it and uh it just you don't see it with the other aspects of the hobby. I don't know. I don't know. So with this in mind, clearly your basement layout 
let's just move that aside here. Let's talk about your garden layout. I've been um, suffering a bit physically lately. I've had to, uh, some mobility issues getting around, uh, back and leg problems, but uh, they're, I'm be- they're being looked after. So anyway, before it got really bad, I was uh, out with a couple hundred feet of garden hose trying to arrange it, strew it about the garden and see where where the track path fell relative to the the shade offered by the trees and the where I recalled all the watery depths were going to be in the springtime. And uh, shortly after that, we had a big windstorm and a huge branch came down and landed right where the track was, I was thinking of putting the track. So it looks like I have enough rail and ties to do 300 and... 18 feet of run. I think that what I'll end up with is a kidney-shaped arrangement probably in the 220-foot length range, and that will leave me enough track to do a passing siding or passing loop, as the uh, Brits would call it, and uh, a stub in which to steam up. Uh, which means I need to come up with the wherewithal to either purchase or fabricate three turnouts at minimum. Yeah, that'll probably that'll probably do me just fine. That's enough track to look after and uh, and have fun with, and it'll all be thirty-two millimeter gauge. To Interesting. Go up, oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Good it'll to know. All go along with my sort of war department theme, uh, as uh, the local uh, World War One expert kindly pointed out. The Bachman wood-sided tipper wagons in G-scale are a very close match to the Type L War Department tipper wagons that the the Yanks brought over during the conflict. They would have been Western Western car and scraper or something manufacture. So uh, I picked up six of those along with the locomotive, and uh, me and my empty wallet went home after that. <laughs> It's easy to say it's expensive and say, well, the first cost is so high, but really there's not a lot to buy now, you know, in terms of, you know, I don't have to go out and buy 150 cars and another three locomotives and fit them all with DCC and have a controller and whatnot. A few tins of butane, um, a barbecue lighter, a bottle of distilled water, and pretty much, you know, you're good to go. It's not taking the indoor layout and moving it outside. It's, it's, some people do that and more power to them, but it's not what I want to do with my out, outdoor layout. I want to have a little stone patio with a couple of uh, small tables, uh, a bug zapper, and a cooler with refreshing beverages. And that's about it. You know, I'm, I'm not aspiring to much. I just want to enjoy the, the spectacle. I want to enjoy the, the wonder of the mechanical movement with a little bit of intervention now and then to keep it uh, flailing about. So you're not thinking operations? No, no. Not yet, anyway. If I, wanted, if I want to do operations, there are a number of layouts in the area that I can go to and, and scratch that itch. And I can do it no-scale, N-scale, HO, S, whatever. My plan for going ahead has always been to, to delve into machining practices and uh, metalwork and whatnot. And to that end, I undertook some tuition and I purchased some equipment, which is currently idle. But when I kind of 
enumerated all of the things I was involved in and, and listed them all out. I said, well, how do I tick all the boxes for my own model rail efforts? And if I want to, if I want to, uh, to sort of uh, hit all the high points without spreading myself really, really thin, then the garden railways is what makes the most sense. Uh, in the off-season when it's not, the weather isn't clement or, or suitable for running, I can certainly be downstairs tinkering with fixing a cylinder or making a new piston or uh, truing up a wheel or, or whatever, you know, make a new uh, cap for the uh, stack. And, and that appeals very much to me uh, in a way that even traditional uh, craftsman structure kits and, and resin car kits just, I mean, that's, that's a separate, a different, uh, another path. I'm just finding it, uh, it, it's, it's a good way to, to, to socialize. It's a good way to, to keep your hand into the, the, the doings, the, the workings of the system, as opposed to you know, buying and sticking on the track. Let's talk track. I recall, I don't know, maybe two years ago when this topic first came up and perhaps the first track arrived, you discussed a little bit about the track that you were going to lay, but um, for folks listening in, myself included, could you uh, could you refresh us associated with what the track will look like? Uh, the track itself, there are a couple of ways to go about track for, for garden railways. You can go down and pick up some LGB 45mm uh, gauge stuff in fixed radius or uh, their flex, uh, which is in brass, and you can slap that down pretty much on anything. It's, it's, it's a a really robust, almost bulletproof way to go about it. However, not cheap. It's uh, somewhere in the order of $10 a foot, I think, in terms of running. And that gets pretty expensive pretty quick. So if I wanted to put down, you know, 200 feet of track, I'm looking at, you know, $2,000 for the track, never mind the roadbed or supporting structure or anything like that. I'd rather spend that on a loco or some cars or a really comfy chair to sit out there with. There are other alternatives. Uh, you can use uh, aluminum rail, you can use steel rail, and you can use brass rail that comes uh, loose and put down your own ties, either made from cedar or another rot-resistant uh, wood, uh, or you can use plastic ties. A company in, in the West Coast called Sunset Valley sells a complete range of uh, of uh, track work, accessories, all the different things you want, uh, 32, 45, and dual-gauge ties in strips. The dual-gauge stuff is amazing. I mean, the combination turnouts and a variety of other things, I think, I mean, even even in with a small layout. I mean, the layout you went to, did that have the dual-gauge stuff with the turnouts and what happened? On Wilbur's layout, he's got two, two separate runs, that is two 45s and a 32 setup. The 32 is a little bit lower, and it's on the inside, so you're sitting on the inside of the oval when you're running on that. And there's a couple of sidings and whatnot, and most of that is Sunset Valley uh, material. The portable layout used to be single gauge, and now it is dual gauged using the same uh, uh, the same uh, components. And yes, it's it's wonderful. It's easy to use. It's it's very robust. It's certainly amongst the best quality material that I've purchased. I bought the aluminum rail because I'm not going to be running any electric engines. Like I won't be using track power. People who use track power for um, for their equipment tend to buy the brass and then get the the rail fittings that have got uh, 
set screws and everything in them to, to give you continuity through there. I'm not going to be using anything electric out there that isn't possibly battery powered. It might I might tinker with a battery powered uh, simplex locomotive uh, because I, I <laughs> although I am ambitious, I don't think I'll end up with a gasoline a miniature gasoline engine running in a in a tiny petrol tractor. So never say never, Chris. But anyway, continue. Yeah, I I you know I, I won't say it won't ever happen, but I don't think it'll be the first thing I do. Very good. You know, guys like Bob Sims that did that wonderful diesel electric uh, British locomotive, uh, you know, radio control in the whole nine yards, you know, the, the host for Model World. Oh, yeah. That was a pretty big beast, though. That wasn't a small thing. No, no. But I mean, that, you know, the, the average person is not going to sit down and, and bang that out. That is definitely something to aspire to. And I, I, I got to give the guy every credit for, for, for doing that uh, gasoline powered um, uh, diesel, diesel electric. In 1975. Exactly, right? You know, when, <laughs> you know, it was just AM, AMRC and whatnot. But if I wanted to lay my own turnouts, I can certainly buy turnouts ready-made. The unfortunate thing is a lot of the, the turnouts tend to be very tight um, frog numbers, like number threes. And yeah. doesn't really lend itself, certainly, to some of the bigger articulated locomotives or even the... Uh, the larger rigid frame ones, like a 280 or something like that, really have a hard time with a number three frog. Sunset does stuff uh, ready-made up to number eight. And, uh, you know, that that is a lot closer to, uh, sorry, I lie, a number 10. I'm sorry, they go up to a number 10. That's that's a really appropriate thing to be using outside in terms of what you're going to, what you're going to run on there. But they also do frogs. You can pick up frogs uh, made in brass and stainless and... Uh, and put together your own turnouts and, and have long point uh, blades on them or uh, uh, curved, uh, curved arrangements. So, And certainly uh, the aluminum rail is, is very easy to form and shape. Uh, we've got a, a roller assembly that, that goes about and is borrowed by various people in the group uh, to uh, preform the, uh, the large radii on the, uh, the rails. The one thing that you have to be cautious of if you're going to use that at ground level is that it is fairly malleable. If you step on it uh, with a hard-soled shoe or, you know, you run over it with a lawnmower wheel, you may deform it, you know, detrimentally. Uh, not that it can't be uh, fettled up again with a file and a uh, judicious application of the pliers, but, you know, it doesn't stand up to that kind of abuse on a regular basis. Uh, the steel rail... You know, you can go that route. You're going to end up with rusty rail. <laughs> which you may want. Well, which you may want. And it's not a problem if you're not using electric power. It's not a problem to, uh, to have rusty rail. When I went up, there's this a garden railway shop just north of me here that I found. And uh, my wife and I went up, traveled up and did a little uh, sweet buy to see what they had. And it was all electric trains uh, through the rails and battery operated, and it had sound systems in it and the Aristocraft uh, uh, remote controls. And the layout that was in the backyard of the of the shop was very much like a basement layout with no roof on it, you know, with a huge viaduct and a pond in the middle of it. And I asked the proprietor if I could have some rail, and he said, "The that's right over there." And I said, "No, that's track. I just want the rail." And he said, well, what would you do with rail? <laughs> I said, well, I, you know, I'd lay it on some wooden ties and spike it down. And um, the look on his face was like I just suggested, you know, cannibalism or something. <laughs> you know, it just it's not done, you know. 
And again, this is where this uh, difference between the electric garden railroader, the live steam garden railroader, and the li- the, the ride-on seven and a half, seven and a quarter. This is this this demarcation or this the rift where never the twain shall meet sort of thing. So you're kind of halfway in between that. The biggest garden railway I've ever seen was was the uh, the Pindle electric tram just down south of me here. Where that's awesome. The photo of you on it always brings a smile to my face. Yes, you know, and uh, that's a different thing entirely. I mean, the fellow who built that does not fit into any of the other categories. He he's not doing ride on live steam at seven and a half or or five inch gauge. He's not doing the typical UK garden 16 millimeter stuff. He's not doing electric indoor railways outside either. I mean, it's just, it's, it's another order of business altogether. And is it ever fun? (laughs) If I could, I've actually took some time and tried to price out what, what he used for his track was actually to take uh, cedar and cut the cedar up into strips and the cedar ties were laid in a bed of limestone and pea gravel. And the rails that are on the ties are actually T-section fence posts bent to shape. And I asked him how he went about bending. And he must have needed a roller to give them a, a curve to do this. And he said, no, no, just stuck them in the, in the crook of that tree and bent them. <laughs> and it took days to bend all the rail up. My goodness. The, the little stub switches and, and point switches that he's got built in there have the uh, turnout mechanism. The, the lever is very much like you would find in a, a, a tramway in street running. It's just a, a, a weighted lever that moves from side to side to give you the, the motion. But the weights, he's a filmmaker. He, he's a filmmaker. The weights are f- uh, metal film canisters filled with concrete, painted yellow. And they're brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I mean, the creativity and the fun level and the craftsmanship that went into the individual uh, cars that he's built with the, the curved slatted seats for the children to sit in and all the, the piping, the railings at the end of the cars made out of copper tube uh, soldered up. And, you know, it's just a level of, of work that you just won't see every day. And I'm so privileged, I can count myself very privileged to have been able to go down and see that uh, in, in person and run around the track, uh, you know, however, however silly I look sitting with my legs sticking out the side of the, the steeple cab. It's the expression on your face that always <laughs> fun, particularly. Anyway, mo- moving on from that, I do understand exactly where you're coming from. It is interesting, actually, in terms of the the kinds of professions that lend themselves towards these kind of layouts and... I've certainly thought, as you do, on a periodic basis associated with my current professional uh, time frame, particularly, I mean, you know, we, we had Seth Newman on uh, the last show and the number of the folk that he meets within this part of the world all basically have professions that afford them maybe slightly more time than, uh, than I find in my own uh, professional career currently. But, yeah, Chris, very inspirational stuff, and I'm interested in... Uh, Although I'm not actually probably going to the seven and a half inch stuff uh, at Grand Rapids, I opted for the MMR uh, tour instead to get a different kind of inspiration. But I am really looking forward to uh, to seeing some of the stuff in the uh, metal on location at the Grand Rails, and also trying to find a local community as well here 
because I know they're out there. I mean, I know just by eBay listings and also uh, Ted's account and various other like documentaries and YouTube stuff that I've seen with the local folk. It's just a matter of making myself known, basically. And you clearly have made yourself known in your part of the world. As you've listened to recent Model Rail radios, are there any topics that have caught you anything that you wanted to raise? I just finished listening to the last the last published episode um, yesterday on the way back from work. Again, you know, 20-some-odd 20, 20 different people on it, starting with the guys talking about the live steam and carrying through the various micro layouts and uh, uh, home layout adventures and, you know, installation of various pieces of equipment and learning experiences. I mean, it, it's it's a cornucopia. Every episode has so much content in it now. There are so many people calling in to to talk about what they're doing in the hobby. And it's fantastic, but I mean, it's just, it's it's overwhelming. Uh, <laughs> you know, I remember in the early days, we'd, we'd have two or three people on, we'd chat for a bit, and and uh, it was very straightforward and pretty much one or two topics per per uh, show. But now, it's... It, it takes me four or five days of commuting to to get it all in. I'm blown away. I, I remain absolutely blown away by, first of all, the variety of things that people are doing in the hobby, their willingness to share with what, what they're doing, both in terms of the materials, the knowledge, and the, the time that they're, they're uh, investing in helping other people or, or talking about the hobby. And the fact that there doesn't seem to be any end to it, despite the fact that this has been going on for two and a half, three years now, it's not flagging. We're not running out of material to talk about. There's always something new. You know, there's a new opinion, a new idea, a new technique, new products. And, you know, I I don't know of any other hobby that that this level of uh, freshness seems to hang around. I just I'm immensely pleased with with what you've put together here Tom this the the concept originally of doing it without you know breaking the bank and and uh you know an extra mortgage payment a month just to just to promote the the hobby and the the response from the general populace from all over the world you know uh it's it just it floors me it still floors me it is a phenomenon certainly I made the promise a few years ago now, that if we got to 100,000, I was going to run an ad in the periodicals just thanking people. And it's getting close. More than halfway there, yeah. The, the, the scary part of it is that, um, yeah, in, in terms of mortgage payments, actually putting those ads in might be, uh, might be equivalent to that. But I'm gathering together recording equipment to take to Grand Rails with the view that we'll have an, a, a number of folk there who have... I don't know whether it's some kind of initiation or whatever we do to get people co-hosting. I was finding this, I'm, I'm still editing audio for the show that will come out prior to this one. But the professors, just little things, like the professor when he first appeared on the show required a substantial amount of editing, but he's now actually speaking in a crisper fashion, <laughs> which requires less editing. Right, you've done this feedback, you've, you've represented himself to himself, <laughs> and now he's he's conscious of it. And I made a comment. Uh, somebody said, "Why does it I always feel like I'm beaten up after I listen to the professor?" And my comment was because it's like being pummeled with a sack full of encyclopedias. 
And it's not meant in a negative way. The, I mean, I would love to have the recall and the detail level in my memory that the professor has, has in his memory to spew that out absolutely unrehearsed when somebody asks a question. That is a tremendous uh, gift and a skill set and that he's chosen to share it with us here on the monorail radio. Again, you know, it blows me away fantastic. It does take two or three weeks to absorb it all and, and, and process it in your head. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, I, I feel a similar way about uh, Ed Novotin. My hope is to meet him in Chicago uh, as well when I'm there. And it's funny, it might be an accent kind of thing. I'm not sure what it is, but I find similar amounts of detail, although with Ed, it's very associated with his particular prototype and various operating ideas that he has. But there are a number of folk who appear on the show who I have a similar decompression with. But yeah, the professor is a phenomenon, and I'm really interested. When he's here, I need to actually get the date set so I can take a bit of time off work when he's here. I'm, I'm interested in being in his presence and absorbing uh, probably a lot more stuff. But returning to Grand Rails, I have two sets of recording equipment plus additional recording equipment. I can actually use my uh, iPhones as, as recorders as well, and we'll do so if needed, because I think taking the show to a live setting, as I did in, in South Australia, was a real eye-opener because it basically expanded. I mean, of the folk who appeared on the South Australian takeover show, Roz and Pam in particular, I mean, I just find their blogs and these kind of things really quite moving in terms of the ability that we've had to affect um, these two people, and thanks also to Jim Gifford, obviously, in getting out into the hobby and really talking about their particular interests, because I think they both have insights. I think everyone who appears on the show has insights to share. But yeah, taking it to Grand Rails as a t test of what Springfield will be like, I'm interested in seeing, because there are a number of things, the success that the show has had through various dynamics could, you know, there, there are so many more dynamics that occur at a at a show like Grand Rails or Springfield and the recording equipment and all these other components, and particularly because it's on the end of a relatively long and intense business trip. <laughs> a wide variety of possibilities here. I remain hopeful. I took the recorder to Springfield the last time. The problem I ran into at Springfield, from my perspective, is is how overwhelming it is. There's so much to see and so much to, to try and, and jam into the well, we're, I'm basically there for a day only. I only make it there and I'm most of Saturday and Sunday morning I'm headed back, uh, back over the border. The vendors, the people you want to talk to the, that are doing displays are so incredibly busy. Uh, they're just 20,000 people are, are all vying for their attention. You know, there are certain uh, displays and certain layouts where their people are literally three deep around it and you'd be lucky to catch a glimpse of what's going on. From my perspective, I wasn't, I wasn't confident enough that I could go in and, and demand of them their time, and I wasn't going to be able to catch them outside of the show. And, you know, you listen to guys like uh, Scotty and Jimmy and... Uh, Dave Freire. Dave, oh, Dave Freire. Well, I, I ran into him at Springfield now twice, and it's been a treat each time. He's, you know, he's a, an icon in the hobby, and there's always somebody looking to talk to him about how he influenced them in, in, in their pursuit in the hobby. It's much more important that those people get the chance to talk to him and express their feelings and, and observations in, in terms of what's going on 
than it is for me to to bother him because we can get him on the show now. He's he comes on. He listens. He's a listener. He's he, he was on a couple of shows ago just listening. I heard that, and and uh, you know I could listen to Dave talk all day, right? But when you when you speak to people like uh, uh, Jeff Adam at Motrack, and you talk to people like Sean Caravetta at Minuteman, or Scotty Mason, or any of the other guys who have a um, a booth there, they are constantly. I don't know how they do it because they're there for the two whole days. They hardly have any relief. Uh, they don't get a chance to see the show themselves, and the last thing they need is somebody sticking a microphone in their face. Certainly. That said, if if something can be arranged in the off hour, I happily take somebody out for a a, a refreshing beverage or a, a snack or a meal or something like that just to get their time. And uh, had a great time chatting with Bill Schomburg from RMC the last time, but you know, as a as a courtesy, I didn't put him on the spot. There was no recording. Yeah, the sensitivity to that is something that I'm going to be very mindful of. I mean, particularly I'm doing a from 7 a.m. to 10:30 in the evening tour associated with the MMR layouts, mm-hmm. and I'll also be on a bus with a variety of other people. Some potentially maybe listeners the ability to use the transitory time the waiting time all these kind of things to record audio would be there but at the same point the ability for folks to call into a show like this indicates even if they're just interested in listening we've had a good success rate turning people who were just calling in initially to listening to actually talking on the show Mm -hmm. the difference to actually stick a microphone in someone's face and say talk about your layout or these kind of things. I've got to be relatively sensitive to that. And I think Jim Gifford was very good in terms of arranging for the group to get together, providing food and wide variety of things, and then getting people talking. The ability to find people cold on the street, so to speak, and get them talking is a different thing. So I'm really interested, actually, of whether it's possible to craft a persona or get an interaction or introduce the show and then present a microphone rather than kind of thrusting it in their face. But my primary reason of going to Grand Rails is actually to interview and talk to people. It's not a show where I think, mainly because of my luggage constraints more than anything, that I can do any purchases. It's not a show where I'm going to do anything in particular, although the layouts were as nice. I'm just interested in experiencing the show with the view that this is a dry run of what may happen in Springfield. We still don't have confirmation of a booth in Springfield. We may be doing roving reporting in Springfield as well. Mm-hmm. But I just want to get a sense of what these shows are like and in terms of the logistics, how easy it is to translate what we do on a, you know, every two or three week basis with the show to a live location. I've picked up a couple of mics that are very specifically designed for these kind of environments. So I will be able to cut down on background noise. I'm pretty confident with post-processing. The NMRA board recording that I did had a vast amount of, like, you know, 60 to 70% of the recording was noise, and I was able to crop that out. So I'm relatively confident um, that I'll be able to cut back on the dynamic noise. But really, yeah, it's going to be an interesting experience for me because I'm coming at for a completely different reason, I think, than most of the everyday punters. But at the same point... I still want an opportunity to have conversations with those people. And my hope is I'll be able to get this audio out on the feed. So folks who are listening in who are going to attend Grand Rails, please do approach me because it's far easier if someone approaches me than me kind of randomly approaching people. My hope is uh, to catch for a short period of time a wide variety of folks in the hobby who will have stands or layouts or things at Grand Rails uh, and have a chance to chat with them. But What I'm looking forward to also is in the off time, both in East Lansing and also in Chicago, 
uh, meeting with folk who've appeared on the show previously in a more not-at-a-show kind of setting um, in order to have these kind of conversations. But no, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, I think even if everything goes terribly wrong and I don't have any audio, I think it'd still be an amazing show, but my expectation is that I will have some audio and hopefully some good audio and hopefully some interesting audio. And I also think there's an opportunity to introduce a number of folk who maybe not have heard of the show previously or, I mean, that was in some regard part of the South Australian experience as well. Ros and Pam had been exposed to the show because Jim would play it at his various operating and work sessions, but they hadn't been exposed to the show in terms of being active participants. And I think the transition of people into active participation also makes more likely for them to call in or these kind of things. So I'm interested in seeing all these kind of dynamics, but it's completely new to me. The shows that I attended in Australia were primarily an annual show, but also shows that were, I don't know, considerably more low-key in some regard uh, than the American-style shows. So it's going to be a new experience for me. I didn't get to Sacramento, unfortunately, due to work commitments, and my hope is that it'll be something that I'll learn from and be able to translate through to Springfield, where you and I will actually have the opportunity to meet, finally, Chris. We'll be able to meet, yes. Uh, I'm going to be arranging a couple of extra days around that weekend so that I don't have to rush in and rush out. But I think that the very, very least in uh, Grand Rails, you're going to be able to hook up with a number of people and get them on board for calling into the show possibly the week after or two weeks after, whatever, and uh, become active participants in Mall Rail Radio. It's going to be great for you to hook up with people like uh, uh, Steve in Chicago and Ed and, and other people and meet them face-to-face and just, you know, chew the fat about the hobby and see in person what they're up to. I had a wonderful time with Matt Goodman. Uh, I think Matt Goodman was really the prototype for this kind of experience because meeting Matt on location and having these experiences with Matt and also a lot of time was actually spent talking. We went to a restaurant and must have hung out there for, I mean, it seemed like, you know, three hours. It was probably closer to two hours. But we had a number of kind of sit-down discussion times. I mean, that was the period where he showed me his layout plan and we went through a number of the smaller details and obviously a lot of discussion associated with the show and these kind of things too. And my hope is at Grand Rails to have a series of those kind of experiences, although unfortunately Matt and I overlap on the Wednesday, but it looks like Matt is doing a layout tour for the entire day and I'm in a kind of recovery first day of nominally holiday kind of experience in Grand, uh, Grand Rapids over that period. But I would like to meet with folk for lunches and dinners through that period of time as well. My Thursday, all booked up with the MMR tour. Friday, uh, my hope is that we could do a lunch, maybe even a breakfast. But yeah, meals periodically at various locations in order to, you know, get together with a wide variety of folk who've participated in the show previously and also listeners. Just getting out there and talking and particular insights, these kind of things. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to Grand Rails. Chris, it's been a rare pleasure to have the chance to chat with you. This is going to be a short show, intentionally designed for the specific purpose. Um, I think we've covered some ground here, Chris. And yeah, look forward to talking to you after Grand Rails. And uh, I'll certainly have a debrief then for you. Well, your, uh, your uh, opinions and... Uh impressions of the show are going to be really interesting to hear. I have my own uh, mental pummeling from from Springfield that I deal with every time I go down there because it's just so compressed for me. And I think having a second day is going to allow me to uh, to think a little more clearly while I'm down there instead of just reacting to stimulus. So 
and you've got to appreciate you you need to revel a little bit in the fact that um even though you didn't attend the last Springfield, you certainly were there was a doppelganger that was attending on your behalf. So you've become a little bit of a celebrity in the hobby here, Chris. You need to enjoy some of that celebrity. Yeah, the the ghost uh the ghost of uh of uh arrangements messed up, apparently. I was yeah, a number of a number of things were attributed to me despite my not actually being present for the show. So I'm not that's good or bad or <laughs> That, that is really high celebrity status there, Chris. I think that's high celebrity status. I think you need to revel in that and, and maximize the, the actual appearance of Chris Abbott at Springfield next year. Yeah, I'm looking, very much looking forward to that. Uh, it's, all, it's all noted down in the calendars. And unless something really unforeseen comes up, I, uh, I expect to be there ready to, to rock and roll, so to speak. But it's been great having a chance to sit down and chat with you, Tom. I'm sorry I've missed... So many uh, episodes of the show to call in during the show. The timing and, and requirements of, of work and home life just are right now or the sine waves are not meshing properly and uh, they're canceling each other out. So, But that's going to change over the summer and I'm sure it'll be different in the fall again. And uh, I'll be able to participate more regularly. So looking forward to it. Always a pleasure, Chris. Talk to you soon. Take care. Take care, Tom.